right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Stick a Fork in It. We are uh, recording through Zoom for safe social distancing, distancing purposes. I am your engineer, Ev Malcolm. I'm here with our hosts, Matt Spence and Shannon Hannon-Olivero. And our guest today is Dennis Phillips, the weatherman from ABC Action News. How are you today, Dennis? Good. How are you guys doing? We're doing awesome. Doing wonderful. We're excited to have you on today. We, uh, you know, as as Floridians, we know this is the time of year where our attention transitions from how hot it is to what might be going on out in the Atlantic. And so we thought it'd be the perfect time to have a conversation with you. But before we get into the professional stuff, we always like to start by allowing our guests to introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about you know, who you are, uh, you know, how you ended up in the world of meteorology and uh, and what you're doing now. Got it. Well, uh, again, I'm Chief Meteorologist over at ABC Action News. I've been here since 1994 when the stations kind of changed affiliation. Like our station used to be Fox and everybody kind of switched around. And um, when I was working in Los Angeles and my boss in L.A. Uh, took the job as news director here to start a brand new news operation. There was no news department at the station. So he, you know, he asked me, did you want to come to Florida? And I had lived in Gainesville, worked there for three years and loved it. Hated LA in terms of the weather because you got a minute and a half to do the weather and half of it was the smog forecast. So it's really boring. You know, there was nothing to it. I mean, the, the chief meteorologist of Channel 4 was a stand-up comic. I mean, there just was nothing there for me. So coming back to Florida gave me the chance to really feel my passion, which, you know, is severe weather and thunderstorms and tropical systems. I mean, that's kind of why I, I got into weather in the first place. Although, you asked me, truth be told, I decided I wanted to be a meteorologist when I was six years old. I saw Santa on radar on Christmas Eve because, you know, the weather people track Santa. I mean, what the coolest job in the world? You get to get paid and track Santa for a living. And that is, that is literally how I started to, that, uh, I decided what I wanted to do. And then I got in older and I liked the severe weather and ended up uh, ultimately right here for the last 25 years. Yeah, wow. that got for me, Dennis, because how my kids know you is not necessarily through your work in meteorology. It is because your neighborhood has one of the best Christmas light displays in all of the Tampa Bay area. And so we make it a tradition every year to go grab hot chocolate, drive through your neighborhood with our windows down and gawk at all of the crazy displays. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. That's actually how I moved into this neighborhood. I, I was like you, I was driving around and we saw, you know, looking at the lights and we saw a house and I, you know, and I am all about Chris. I mean, my family literally calls me Clark Griswold. That is me. <laughs> and I mean, it, it's just, it's the truth. I mean, I, and I, the exact same thing that, you know, when you're putting up the lights and one doesn't work, you're running around trying to figure it out, going crazy. That That is completely me. And, and so, as you said, you know, the neighborhood goes nuts and it's done that for you know, 25, 30 years, but when I came into the neighborhood, I've, I've got a pretty strong social media following. And, you know, a few years ago, I went on and said, hey, come on out. This is a great neighborhood to check out the Christmas lights. You know, I pretty much invited the, the entire Tampa Bay area. I didn't realize the entire Tampa Bay area would show up. <laughs> and my neighbors just were not happy. I mean, because the traffic, which was one level, took it up about 50 levels. And then you mentioned hot chocolate. That's how we started our fundraising efforts for our family. My, my fourth grader at the time, him and his, co, his school friend, they had a, a project that they were wanted to do some kind of a fundraiser. And they thought, hey, let's sell hot chocolate for a dollar a cup for the folks who are coming to the Christmas, Christmas display. And that's how it started. And we only went bigger and better each and every year. And, and my daughter and my son um, also were very active in Children's Miracle Network with Shands in University of Florida. So we literally went through the process of just selling dollar hot chocolate and dollar popcorn, and we made over $10,000 doing it just um, in about two weekends. That's the volume that we get here on Christmas time. So if anybody's out there, you, you know, you're, you're looking for some holiday spirit in December, come on out to Indian Trails in Palm Harbor because it is a spectacular uh, display. But give yourself some time because I even went as far as I hired Pinellas County sheriffs this last year to work traffic just because it was just so bad. And it got a lot better last year with that, with the police helping out. Well, and it's, it's neat to hear that and hear how your, your kids are what inspired you to start doing the fundraising, because it's another reason we're together and talking with you today. This is a great month to be connected with, 
you and all the work your family is doing. I know before we got on, you were uh, giving us the Zoom tour through the house and showing us behind the scenes on the rule number seven uh, operation for for all of your uh, different drinkware that's that's coming out. I know somewhere between your house and mine is a is a set of garnet and gold tumblers that have. Oh, rule you're the garnet and gold. Okay, I saw that order. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us yeah, a little well, what you're doing now. Yeah, sure. Uh, we've had you know, this whole rule number seven thing. I mean, it kind of that's probably where we should start. It's kind of crazy. Back in 2012, you guys probably remember Hurricane Isaac was coming. The RNC was here. The Republican National Convention was here, and we had a hurricane that was coming close, and everybody was freaking out. And the entire time, I was real confident that the majority of that storm was going to stay offshore. And we'd get some, you know, some nasty weather, some gusty winds, but it wasn't going to be any kind of devastation or it really wouldn't require a lot of cancellation. So I literally in five minutes just jotted down these, these rules. There was no reason for it other than just, you know, look for the trend. Don't look for each model run of back and forth. You're going to go crazy if you do. And, and my last rule was don't freak out unless I'm freaking out. We're fine. And that just happened to be rule number seven, the seventh one that I looked, that I posted. And as silly as it is, it kind of got legs. And it, it just was the kind of thing, rule number seven, rule number seven, don't freak out. And, and then it kind of turned into a thing where the way I look at hurricane preparedness is how in the world are you going to make a decision that's going to help your family and protect your family if you are freaking out? Yeah. You need to take a breath. You need to kind of get used to, you know, what is going on and tr go to your trusted source of information, wherever that is, and kind of go from there. And so anyway, it just kind of turned into a thing so much so that we took our little logo that we had made on Etsy for like $15 and um, sent it to this manufacturer that sells T-shirts and coffee mugs and and wh whatnot. And, um, and, you know, they did everything. They did the manufacturing. They shipped it. They took the orders. We didn't do anything. So the profits we sent to different local charities, one of which was Feeding Tampa Bay, um, a lot of other ones as well. Then we decided, everybody said, we have, apparently have a lot of drinkers in this area, and they wanted wine glasses. <laughs> so uh, wine glasses and wine tumblers, my wife said, oh, I can do that. I, I can do that because she's a crafty person. And so we went ahead and started. The difference with this is, is we're making these ourselves. And we were on vacation for the last week and a half, and we came back. And it's a, it is a daunting task. I think my wife is going to have to look at the rule number seven rule because she is freaking out trying to figure out how in the world we're going to make all these wine glasses and tumblers that literally each one of them is handmade and handcrafted wow. so so that's how it started and that's where we are right now as this phone is actually propped up against boxes that are out to be shipped today wow so i don't know how we got into this part of it but the the best part about it is you know that uh each and every sale a donation is made to feeding tampa bay so that to me is is uh, the kicker on all of it I, Which I think, really appreciate, and um, I'm I'm sorry, but we're going to tell people that they can go and get their tumbler, <laughs> their <laughs> wine tumbler, <laughs> and help feed their neighbors. <laughs> yeah, and wine glasses too. She makes these custom wine glasses. Where I mean, where she literally does the whole thing from just a regular glass and glitters it and does all this stuff to it, and it takes a long time. So, I mean, honestly, we were up until about four o'clock this morning, and she started out of bright and early this morning. And, and uh, we're nowhere even near the end of the, of the tunnel. So, I, so oh, I don't wow. know. hopefully people will be patient is my, is my message. Of course. Well, thank you so much for that. Yeah. So if you are patient and, and think that's a great idea to have a rule number seven tumbler or wine glass, you can order them through your Facebook page, right? There's a link there that will take you. There out is. To yeah, they're actually the Etsy site is something's not working on it. We were looking at searching rule number seven Tumblr on Etsy and I can't find it. It's as of about 12 hours ago. Um, but I, I if you do go on my Facebook page, Dennis Phillips, one in and Dennis, Dennis Phillips, WFTS. And it's my my station page. And right there at the top, you will see a link on how to click on it and, and choose. We've got about maybe 15 or 20 colors now. And um, adding some more. And you mentioned garnet and gold. There's orange and blue. There's black. There's there's um, green and black for or green and gold for USF. There's gold and black for UCF. Even some hurricane fans came in and said, "Hey, you got to have our colors too." So uh, it's you know it's something that we love to do, and it is a family thing. I mean, as we said, my children started this, but it has turned. And I have six kids, so I've got a pretty big family, and they all while some of them have now gone off to school and in college and whatnot. You know, when they come home, especially over the holidays, they know that it's going to be a a uh, 
crazy time with uh, fundraising and the holidays and, and living in a large family like that, it's always chaotic anyway. So we're just getting used to it. This podcast was made possible by the innovative thinking and the funding of Feeding America, a nationwide network of more than 200 food banks that feed more than 46 million people through food pantries, soup kitchens, shelters, and other community-based agencies. Well, I think, you know, when you were talking about uh, your your description of the hurricane and, and what people should be doing, you hit on a couple of words that I think really identify why it's become so popular is because First and foremost, you are a trusted source for information about what's going on and what people should be freaking out about and should not be freaking out about in our area. I know um, my wife and, and the neighbors in our in our neighborhood were really excited about the, the rule number seven tumblers because they are all uh, Dennis Phillips groupies. That where they go <laughs> for their information yeah. about the weather is your Facebook page. That's their first stop. You know, I, I thank you and tell them I said thank you very much. And it's, it's, I really think longevity has a lot to do with stuff in, in terms of trust. I mean, we've, had, we've been fortunate in this area to have some great weather people. Roy Leap, uh, who was here on Fox for the longest time. And then you had Dick Fletcher, uh, who was at Channel 10. And in fact, one of my biggest honors, uh, Dick died, gosh, I don't remember how many years ago, but they, uh, the Governor's Hurricane Conference uh, created an award, uh, the Dick Fletcher Hurricane Preparedness Award, in terms of just how, how to prepare people and how to get them through a storm. And, and I was the first Bay Area person, in fact, the only Bay Area person, I guess, to get that. And to me, that was a feather in my cap because, I mean, Dick had that kind of following. And it was because of the way I look at it, the trust factor. You know, it was a learning experience for me. I will tell you, I, I'm a weather geek. I always have been a weather geek. I love storms. You know, I said that was kind of one of the main reasons I, I came back here. And I always had the thought I wanted to tie myself to a palm tree as a storm was coming in. Or, or do the, you know, do the chasing as I have done actually from time to time. But I've learned as I've gotten older and especially after Charlie, because a funny story here with Hurricane Charlie. So everybody says, why do you wear these ridiculous suspenders? I never wore a pair of suspenders and I had a jacket on doing the weather every day prior to Hurricane Charlie. And when Hurricane Charlie back in 2004, if you're not familiar with it, that was our storm. Hurricane Charlie was probably more our storm than Irma was. The Hurricane Center had it dead right into the middle of Tampa Bay as a Category 4 hurricane, and that was eight hours before landfall. So I, you know, as that storm was coming, I had one pair of suspenders to my name. Our sports guy, Jay Crawford, said, Dennis, you should buy a pair of suspenders. They're kind of cool from time to time. And he was a young, hip, good-looking guy. I'm like, all right, well, if he, if he can do it, I'll, I'll try. I'm just a weather geek. So I bought a pair, and I happened to have them as I was going on the air that day. Well, I went on, I was on the air 36 straight hours. You take your jacket off when you're on TV for a long time. And I happen to have a pair of suspenders on for no particular reason. Well, after the storm missed us, the station did all this research. Who did you watch? Who did you like? Overwhelming response. No idea what the guy's name was, but he was wearing a pair of suspenders. <laughs> and my boss goes, that's your new shtick. So, so literally from that day on, if you go back and look at any of my shows before that Saturday, I had a jacket on like everybody else. And then after that, it just turned into these ridiculous suspenders. So, um, and, 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 and that's kind of, um, what I've learned through the years as I go on from there is people don't necessarily just want to know what a storm is going to do. And this was a, this was as valuable of a lesson as I've ever learned because I was always about getting it right. That was my thing. I mean, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm pretty good at forecasting tropical stuff. This is all that is important. People, all they come to me for is to know whether that storm is going to hit us or not. And I've learned, and especially with Irma, I've learned that that's just not the case. You know, people need, people want to have their hands held as you walk them through that storm. And not just the storm itself, the prep, the storm, and the aftermath. And that was a huge lesson for me. And I think a really valuable one because that's what I usually hear. It isn't just, okay, I'm going to watch you because you know what you're talking about with the weather. I don't think most people realize the forecast isn't very different from station to station when it comes to a hurricane. I mean, right? I mean, especially now with the internet. I mean, everybody kind of knows what the track is supposed to be. I think they want somebody who isn't running around screaming at them that they're all going to die. And, and that is the big thing with Irma for me was, I and mean, we mentioned this a couple of minutes ago, is when I was when I was watching other coverage when Irma was on, I was watching the Weather Channel. The Weather Channel's got great meteorologists. I know a lot of them personally. But the promotions and the national media was showing this storm and pretty much saying Florida's all going to die. And 
our local people had your relatives and your friends up north who were calling you saying, you guys got to get out of there. You're all going to die. And, and a lot of the folks are saying, no, really, I think we're probably going to be OK. Our local weather people that we trust are saying we think this is going to happen. And, and and I think that was as valuable of a, of a lesson to me as I've ever learned that it isn't just about getting it right. It's about helping people get through this situation, which is obviously what y'all you would, you would do so much so with feeding Tampa Bay. Yeah, it's it's so true, because I think in in my world. So many people, like I said, watch you and and really take to heart uh, and trust that that what you're telling us is is what's going to happen and how we should approach things. Um, and the exact opposite side of that is, I remember vividly the day that we heard Jim Cantori was going to be in Tampa Bay was the day we decided. We're all doomed. Yeah, that's the day we're like, okay, we're out of here. <laughs> you know, so everybody has their brand. I think suspenders is probably better than terror uh, in your face. Yeah, I mean, they have a promo. They've got a, I mean, it's a funny promo. They have a promo that shows when um, when Jim comes to the grocery, people run away. And when, you know, wherever he goes, I mean, literally, it's a, it's a funny promo because you're right. That is the reputation. He's the guy who always knows where the middle of the storm is going to be, which actually in the last couple of years has really not been the case as much. But unfortunately, really, I guess for him. Um, but I mean, it's going to be an active year. I mean, we can talk about what the upcoming season is going to bring, but I don't think there's any doubt there's going to be a lot of storms out there. We've already had a lot. But again, who cares if we're all in the middle of the ocean? Right. I mean, that that's my thing. I, I'm not I really don't put much into those long range hurricane forecasts because to me, they don't mean anything to people. If we have 20 named storms and they're all in the ocean, pretty much everybody's going to say, oh, it was a quiet year. If we have one storm and it happens to hit Tampa Bay as a category four, it was a horrible year. I mean, you look back in the early 90s and the first storm didn't form until the middle of August. It was a really quiet year. But that first storm was the A storm was Andrew. Uh, you can guess a lot of people in Homestead would probably argue with you saying it was a quiet year, even though numbers why it was. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, go ahead. Tell us, tell us what we should expect this year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I will tell you, it's it, we've already had, you know, a lot of storms. We're, we're going to have a lot. Everything is coming together that there will be a lot of tropical storms and a lot of hurricanes. There's no way around. We're probably talking 16 to 20 named storms. I, I will also tell you the Hurricane Center has been naming things that in the past they maybe didn't name for whatever reason, whether they didn't have the technology to determine it was really tropical or not or whatever. Point is, you know, in maybe 20 years ago, half of the storms we've already had wouldn't have been named at all. So when I say there's 20 named storms, that doesn't mean they're all going to be bad. But I'm really confident that there is going to be some very large hurricanes in the Atlantic, August, September, and early October. Whether they impact Florida, who knows? I mean, it's one of those things. You do, I mean, we're Floridians. We go through this every year. We know you have to prepare for it. But the thing that's crazy about Tampa, about the Bay Area, it's been almost 100 years since we've been hit by a major hurricane blows me away to think about it. I mean, everybody, oh, we're in Florida. We're bound to get hit more often than that. We get near misses and we get brushed. And I'm, I'm knocking on some wood here. But, um, you know, we have been fortunate that we have missed the major hurricanes, category three or higher. The last one was the end of October back in 1921. And, that, and that's something a lot of folks ask me. So what months are we most um, vulnerable here in the Bay Area? For us to be hit from, if, if we get hit from a storm on the East Coast, right, one that comes in from Miami or West Palm or Melbourne or whatever and cuts across the state, we all know those aren't going to be as bad for us because they have to go across the state first, right? So we're concerned about ones that come in from the West. Those are our biggest concerns. That would be our worst case scenario. And, and truth be told, worst case scenario is a storm that goes from the Caribbean. It goes east of the Yucatan and west of Cuba. It goes right in through that little area, that's straight, right? And then it goes north. Hurricanes want to go north. They're going to continue to go north unless something pushes them east. So a storm that comes in down south, west of Cuba, if it were to go due north, it's going to hit the panhandle. That's where they want to go. So more, by far, more storms are going to hit the panhandle than the west coast of Florida. Why is that? Because you need something to kick it east. What would that be? A front. How many fronts do we get in the summer? Not too many, right? We don't get a lot of cold fronts in the, in, the, in the summertime. But once we get into September and we get into October, then we start to get some fronts. And those are the ones that can kick it to the east toward us. 
So our probably if you were to look at, at our situation, that would be the one that everybody worried about would be something coming from the Caribbean, going north in the eastern east central Gulf, and then a front swings down and kicks it into our area. That's what happened with Charlie. Luckily for our area, not so much Punta Gorda, but for our area, the front was strong enough that it kicked it even a little sooner than it was forecast. So instead of hitting the Bay Area, it hit uh, the Punta Gorda area. How many of you, I don't know if you guys did this or if you were here then, but I'm telling you, there are a lot of people who evacuated our area to Orlando and got hit right in the middle of that storm. I, I personally did that with Irma. I, I left here when Jim Cantori showed up and <laughs> to my to my best friend's house in you know just north of Orlando and the eye ended up coming right over his house. <laughs> yeah, it was it was um they Polk County got hit even in 04 um with with Gene, with Francis, and with you know with Charlie obviously, and I mean they had a bullseye over Lake Wales. And it does seem like, at least based on the tracks that we've seen in recent history, that our inland areas get it a lot worse than the coastal areas. I mean, truth be told, I think we all know at some point it's going to happen. I mean, it just is. There's no way it's not. Whether it's going to be a three or a four, you know, who knows? But I mean, there's just no way around it, which is why you know, organizations like Feeding Tampa Bay are having a plan in advance is just it's paramount. You have to do it because if you don't, it's just not going to work. There's, I mean, and I, and I think a lot of people are thinking this year of all 2020, right? When I mean, you've seen them, you've seen the memes, you've seen everything. You've already had this coming. What's next? Oh, hurricane season or Godzilla or whatever it is, you know? So, you know, it's, it's, if there were ever a year that we would have to go through this, you almost feel like this would be the year, but I'm hoping like everybody else, that's just not the case. Yeah. Please do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, right. and, you know, in many ways though, uh, Hurricane Irma ended up being somewhat fortunate for us here at Feeding Tampa Bay because it was scary enough to activate everything. It did knock out power in a lot of places, but it didn't really devastate our community. But what it did for us organizationally was it gave us real life experience with how we would activate, what we needed to do to uh, pre-stage food in places, how we would respond, who we didn't know that we wanted to know. Now we have a seat in the emergency operations center that is reserved for feeding Tampa Bay. So as things are happening, we're the first one in the social services world that the emergency operations community connects with. We now know how to get folks in the immediate aftermath food because they're out of power, Everything in their fridge is spoiled. Everything in their freezer is spoiled. They probably are not as prepared as they should be and or aren't able to be as prepared as they want to be in a lot of cases. And so it really forced us to buckle down and get serious about our planning. And we feel pretty good now that we have some things in place we didn't before. We have a generator that can run our facility. We have you know, a team in place that is in constant and direct communication with the op center. We have uh, our plans internally about who's going to take what role and who we know will be able to be immediate first responders and who might have to evacuate. You know, we've done a lot of that pre-work ourselves, so we feel pretty good about being ready to respond. And you mentioned, too, uh, some folks maybe not as ready as they, as they need to be or they want to be. A lot of folks are, are afraid to go to Home Depot or afraid to go to Lowe's or afraid to go to a place to, to get the things that they need. So, I mean, I'm with you on this. It's, I think if you've lived here for a period of time, I think most folks know what you should have in a hurricane kit and, and how much you, you need and, and all of that. The question is, though, do you really expect people in advance to do that? And I think we all have seen the lines at any hardware store when a storm is coming. Uh, to know that that's it's just not the case. People don't prepare as much as they need to. And and, and I, I will tell you, we talked about Irma and Irma was the storm and all these things about Irma. We never had sustained hurricane winds in the Bay Area with Irma. Nobody, not Polk County, who got a 100 mile an hour wind gust. And when we talk about sustained winds, that means winds of hurricane force, which is 74 miles an hour or greater for a, a one for 60 seconds or, or longer. We never had that. So in reality, what we had was a strong tropical storm. 
and it still did the kind of damage that it did. We still had the power outages that we still had. We still had folks needing help. And, and that's why we, we just try to get the message out. And it's a fine line because now this year of all years, I think when you go out and tell people that you need to be prepared, they'll accuse you of trying to scare them because that's what the general population mindset is after COVID. I mean, I mean, we've seen it. We all see it on, on social media every day. You've got 50% of this, 50% of the other side saying one thing or another. And half of the people are or maybe 100% of them are saying they're trying to scare. So in weather, it's always that's always been something that I think meteorologists have to deal with as a hurricane approaches because people throw off the, oh, they're just saying it's going to hit us because or it's going to be bad because they want to get people to watch it. That's where I go. You know, on a national scale, I, maybe I won't dispute that fact. If it's a national media source, maybe there's some truth to that. But on a local scale, that's just not true because every single person in local media lives here just like everyone else does. And nobody wants to have that kind of difficulty and mayhem for a prolonged period of time. I mean, we live here. So when a meteorologist in this market goes on and, and says that this is the real deal, and hopefully we don't we don't have to say that. Let me tell you a quick story about Irma, because I think you guys will love this. So Irma was original. Well, it went back and forth in the windshield wiper effect. But there was a period of time, most of the time, the track was in the east coast of Florida. It wasn't in our it wasn't on our side. And the European model, Thursday night, Friday morning, 2 a.m., and the Euro is really the best model in the world. It's by far the most accurate, at least in terms of um, overall over the years. So at about 2 a.m., the new Euro run came out. Now, the Hurricane Center still had this storm on the East Coast. Their next advisory was going to be 5 a.m., okay? And the Euro at 2 a.m. came out and changed this track to the West Coast of Florida. And I'm looking at it. And oh, are you kidding me? 20 seconds after I got that, I got a Facebook message on my computer from Paul Delegato, a buddy of mine on Channel 13. And Paul, his message to me was, oh, my God. And and we had a conversation. Do we go and tell our followers, which to combined, we have three quarters of a million followers. Do we go on our our sites and tell people, OK, the track is going to change to our area now. You need to reevaluate what you're going to do. Or do we wait for the Hurricane Center to do their update at 5 a.m.? And, and our take was, and, and I think a lot of you know, there were people up at 2 a.m. when this storm was getting closer, wanting you know every computer run, every new bit of information people were trying to get to make a, an educated decision for their family. So the two of us decided we were going to go ahead and post it anyway and say in three hours, the Hurricane Center is going to have a drastic change to their track and it's going to go to the west coast of Florida because they followed the Euro with that storm literally every step of the way. And sure enough, they did. And funny story, that is why, well, uh, funny, but that moment, that 2 a.m. moment is when my family picked up and left. Now, now we didn't leave because we thought the home was going to be devastated. We have a lot of trees in our, in our neighborhood and I was afraid a tree would fall on the house and I was going to be at work. So, you know, I knew for, for a fact I wouldn't be at home to help out. So that's when my family jumped in the car with the dogs and everybody and went up to the closest hotel, which was Atlanta. That's as close as we could get by then. So so anyway, I mean, my point being, again, back with Irma, is that that wasn't even a major storm or even really an actual hurricane when it hit our area. And it still did the kind of damage that it did. And I think a lot of folks, they think about, you know, the storm itself, but they don't think about what it's like to live with no air conditioning or no power for a week or two weeks or longer in Florida in the middle of the summer. Yeah, my neighborhood was seven days without power that that week, and that was not a lot of fun. Florida Blue's mission is to help people and communities achieve better health. In partnership with Feeding Tampa Bay, their collective goal is a hunger-free Tampa Bay by 2025. How will we do that? by ensuring that all our neighbors have access to fresh, nutritious food that is essential to a healthy and capable lifestyle. We invite you to join the movement. Visit hungerfree2025.com. You know, I, I want to go back to something that you mentioned about this year in particular that, um, you know, we, we know regardless of what we say, what you say, people are going to wait till the last minute to prepare. And the thing that scares me about this year is that you know, usually it's that little bit of reserve that folks have and they don't want to prepare because they don't want to spend that money if they don't have to. And it's folks who don't really have that money to spare that wait. 
And this year, not only do they not really have that reserve in normal times, they've already spent it on coronavirus crisis money. They've been without paychecks for some people for 10 weeks, you know, and so all of the panic, all of the kind of reserve that people have, in a lot of cases, it's gone. And so that's what really frightens me about this year and really wants, makes us want to dig in even more to our response. Because we know in a normal year, we're a critical immediate response to what happens in a hurricane. And this is not a normal year. So your fundraising for us, the attention that you can bring to what we can do in the immediate aftermath is going to be so important when the inevitable happens because this year above all others, people will be less prepared. Yeah, and I think that uh, a lot of folks, even if they've been in this community for a while, I mean, you know, a lot of folks pay attention to things when they need things. And, you know, it's it's one of those things that, that I remember, I, you know, I had done, when I started doing the fundraising and, and, and started including defeating Tampa Bay, you know, some folks had asked me, are they local? I'd never heard of them. And, and it was because they had never had a need. But now, and I know you guys have been saying this, and we ran the stories, that what, 70% of the people, um, it was, what was the number on that, 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 that they, um, this was their first exposure? When we started doing our mega pantries, which is, you know, we had 1,200 people coming to us at Tropicana Field, 3,000 people coming to us at Hillsborough Community College. In the first couple weeks after uh, the lockdown started, we did some uh, surveying and 70% of the folks who were in line to receive food assistance had never used the food relief system before. Mm -hmm. So you're you're dead on that this is just a very different year and the need is going to be so much different than other hurricane seasons. You know, we, we are, uh, we're out there securing every resource we can and, and pulling every string, which is why, you know, we, we want to make sure that we say thank you and, and show our appreciation to folks like you who are pitching in and, and spreading the word and, and helping raise funds. And uh, there was a, a nice cross promotion with y'all and ABC Action News at our station. And I, I believe they raised $75,000 um, donations from the community, uh, people who are trying to help out. So the, I definitely think the message is out there now, uh, maybe even more so than it ever has been. Unfortunately, it's not the best way that we got there. But but it is there now, and you know maybe in some ways that could that could be a little more helpful as hurricane season approaches. But I'm with you. I'm just hoping we blow this one off. Everything stays out in the middle of the ocean, and we don't even have to talk about any of this because I'm not so sure uh, people have the have the patience, the tolerance, or any of it to <laughs> to go through the the next couple of months and add a storm to it as well. So we're keeping our fingers crossed. Yeah, well, for all keep time. your eye on it for us. Strain, there's, as, there's as much emotional strain, you know, and, and I think adding a hurricane in the fear and uncertainty on top of that is just something we really don't need. You know what? You, that's such a great point. And I'll go back to the Irma situation. So, you know, my neighbors, you know, if you're the meteorologist in the neighborhood, people are going to come up to you and ask you what's going to happen. I mean, and, and their rule of thumb always was if I'm boarding on my windows, then they have to. If I don't, they're okay. That was literally, that's, I hear that all the time. And not that that's any added pressure to you or anything, but, um, but anyway, so I, I, when, when Irma was coming, when it hit Cuba, I knew we were going to be okay. Now you don't go on TV and tell people that because you can't, because what if you're wrong? I mean, you know, but right. as, as a scientist and as with my experience told me that it spent 18 hours on Cuba that beat that storm up enough that I no longer had worries that it was going to be a devastating hurricane for our area. Um, was there still a, a slight possibility? I guess there's always, it's weather. I mean, things change quickly, but I was real confident in telling my family that this house was going to be here after this storm went through. And I told my neighbors the same thing. But as I told you, I was afraid of the trees. There aren't a lot of trees in my neighborhood, but there are in my lot. And with that, I was really afraid that that the family a tree and a tree did fall by the way luckily it fell in the other direction not in the house so anyway as i was getting ready to go into work my family had already left i was loading up because of the possibility that a tree might fall on the tree on the house i was loading up pictures scrapbooks anything that i wanted in case something happened and the tree went through and the, and the rain would destroy everything my neighbors were all coming up to me as i'm loading up my suv 
filling it up with stuff saying, what the heck are you doing? You told us we were going to be okay. And, you know, and, and my take was, no, 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 you guys are going to be okay. You don't have trees in your, in your yard like I do. I was just afraid of this. But I saw in their faces, you, you talk about the fear, and that's what it was. Because in the Bay Area, we haven't really had to face that fear head on with hurricanes that often. We had Charlie and we had Irma. And honestly, in the 25 years that I've been here, those are the only two that really posed a direct threat as a, as a sizable hurricane. Nothing else has. So this isn't something we go through every day. And usually we don't go through very, you know, every year or even every decade. So hopefully we'll keep it that way. Yeah, it's a, like you said earlier, you know, the difference between the West Coast and the Panhandle is huge. I have a, I have a good buddy who's a priest in uh, Panama City and Michael took dead aim at his church and, you know, the, just the amount of devastation around him. And uh, we actually ended up sending feeding Tampa Bay staff up to the panhandle staging out of his church to provide uh, food and water to the community. And so, uh, you know, I, we are fortunate where we live that the threat is, is far less, but we really appreciate having somebody like you to, Follow that rule number seven to let us know when to freak out. You know, uh, it, it really is. Um, it, it's nice to have a trusted source that we're all comfortable with that we can uh, look back at and say, you know what? Dennis was absolutely spot on the whole way. He told me when to freak out. I told me when not to freak out. I didn't. And everything's OK. Well, I appreciate it. I'll tell you, just the only thing that that and I wanted to mention this, too, because a lot of people ask these questions. So are storms getting stronger in the last 10, 20 years? I get this question all the time. I can't necessarily say that storms are getting stronger. I mean, there might be some data showing that, that that's true. But what I have noticed, and I, I think it's um, indisputable, is that storms are intensifying much faster in the last 10, 20 years than they have in the previous time period. And you brought up Michael. Michael is one of those storms. Um, it's what scares us the most is that if somebody's going to bed and you have a category one hurricane and you think, or even a strong tropical storm, and you think I can ride this one out, I'm okay. And you wake up six hours later and it's turned into a category three hurricane. Those are the, the situations that keep emergency management folks up at night. Those are the things that really scare us because if you live along the coast, you're not gonna evacuate for a tropical storm, a, tr a strong tropical storm. You might not even evacuate for category one hurricane because we don't have a lot of ways to get out of this area. If you live in Pinellas County, there's a handful of ways to get out. If they close the bridges, there's even fewer than that. So, you know, all of a sudden you're in an area where you go to bed, you think you're okay, you wake up and it's too late to do anything. And those are the situations that, that are most frightening, which is why I can, only, I can only stress, whoever your weather source is, you know, follow them on social media and as the storm gets closer really pay attention because things can change we've all seen it with charlie we saw it in our favor we saw what was supposed to be a category four hurricane and a storm surge of 15 feet i mean there was you know there were there were those the possibilities at the convention center it would be halfway underwater i mean that was that was the worst case scenario with charlie with a 15 to 20 foot surge but my concern is the ones where we're not really expecting it and it all of a sudden just blows up last minute. So it's always important to really, you know, if you look at it once a day, if the storm's getting closer, and I think a lot of us are looking at it once every 10 minutes, truthfully. I mean, I think people kind of get it now. They can see it on social media and they're taking advantage of that. So that is one of the one of the good things out there. I only say again, take a source that you trust because there's a lot of people out there on social media that just want to scare you. They don't really necessarily, um, are looking out for your best interest. They're just trying to get clicks. So follow somebody that you like, that you trust, that you've known for a while. And, and I'm sure as a, as a group, we'll get through it. Absolutely. I think it goes back to preparation too. You know, I'm, I'm as guilty as, as anybody else is of, you know, because we've been fortunate, I have my hurricane box, but you know, if the remote, the power, the batteries die on the remote, maybe I just, Hey, we have to, that hurricane box. Why don't we grab those? I'll pick it up. I'll pick up a replacement later, or you know, I want a bottle of water. We'll dig into the hurricane supplies. We'll fill it later. You know, <laughs> and, and this is not the year to do that. Yeah. No. yeah. I think at some point we have to run out of bad luck this year, right? So it probably should happen by August, right? We should be back on uh, on good luck by then. 
Uh, Let's hope so. I mean, usually, like I said, the peak of the season runs from the middle of August until the end of September. Yeah. I mean, traditionally, the the peak is September 10th, but I think it's going to be a a longer than normal season. I hate to say that, but I do. That not necessarily longer in terms of um, that we're going to have any impact from them. It's just storms will continue to form probably into early October, maybe even mid-October. So it's going to be a while before we can say, okay, we made it through this year. Yeah. That only gives you six weeks to prepare for Christmas, then. <laughs> <laughs> and we start. We start in October. Well, actually, we start the day after Halloween. So I mean, it's it's and every year it gets bigger and bigger. So yes, if anyone again, if we <laughs> around Christmas time, come on out and and we will uh, we will be there with popcorn, hot chocolate, candles, rule number seven merch, and lots of Christmas lights. So that's every week, every day. From December until New Year's, so we'll throw that one in there. My neighbor, my neighborhood association, will just love me to give one more pitch to that. <laughs> uh, now we're going to add our crowd to the visitor list for the holidays. Well, Dennis, thank you so much for hanging out with us today and and giving us all your insight and tips. We want to encourage everybody to follow Dennis on social to keep up to date on your weather and especially during the hurricane season. Uh, I, for one, packed up all my stuff on the water during Irma when I heard uh, it was headed our way personally. And now I live in Hillsborough County, not going to lie. Um, <laughs> that was enough for me. Um, and follow Feeding Tampa Bay, of course, if you need anything from us to put food on your table. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. So uh, thank you, everybody. Welcome to um, another edition of What the Food Bank. We just had a wonderful interview with Dennis Phillips from ABC Action News. Um, And we wanted to continue the conversation with sort of how Feeding Tampa Bay handles hurricanes and, um, you know, kind of the things that we do to prepare. And uh, and we have with us uh, a guest on our show, one of our uh, co-workers and uh, and esteemed friends, Jim Carpenter. Hi, Jim. How are you? Good. How are you? Good, 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 good. Um, So, uh, Matt, if you want to kind of uh, take us into the conversation. Sure, Jim. I, you know, I'd love for you to introduce your role a little bit here at Feeding Tampa Bay, uh, both on the operations side, but also and and most especially, your work around our emergency preparedness. Um, you know, I think it's important for folks to know that Feeding Tampa Bay is a first responder. We are planning and preparing to be there the moment folks need us. As soon as a the the storm itself moves on, we jump right in behind it. So, uh, can you share a little bit about your role in in all of that? Sure. Well, I'm the director of operations at Feeding Tampa Bay. I've been here for just over four years. Uh, This was my first role in the nonprofit world. Before that, it was in uh, warehousing, cold storage, transportation, logistics, and things of that nature. Um, And what Matt said is absolutely true. We are, uh, one of the best ways I've ever heard it put was by Thomas Mance, and he said, we lean into the storm. And and we really do. Um, And it's never been more uh, noticeable than, than this current season that we're in right now, you know, up until I think the last couple of years, we've thought that there's a hurricane or a storm season, but as we see, uh, disasters are, are disasters, whether they're natural or whether they're a government shutdown, for example. So we respond as we're needed and, and, uh, we're very proud of being part of that, that first team in the door, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that we talked about with Dennis was that um, it's really important to follow his rule number seven, which is don't freak out until he tells us to freak out. And I think one of the ways that makes it possible for us to follow that advice is by being prepared. So can you talk a little bit about how Feeding Tampa Bay is preparing ourselves to be there uh, as a first responder in the wake of a storm? Sure. So in my role as as director of ops, one of the things that I've been tasked with is making sure that we do have uh, everything ready to go when it's time. So uh, there are so many different pieces in our world from our agencies that are out in the field that are serving the community firsthand to our donors and our and our folks that we get our food from uh, to the very people that work here at the food bank with us and and especially even our volunteers. Um, There's so many moving parts always, even on a just a regular day-to-day basis. But when there's an event that affects all of us dramatically and drastically, um, 
our our ability to respond is is crucial and critical. So there are so many things that affect that ability to respond and, and um, having the relationships in the community with the folks that are on the ground, boots on the ground, so to speak, uh, is critical to to our ability to to make sure that we're where we need to be and, and responding in a way that's effective. Um, some of the things that we do to get prepared, um, this happened a couple of years ago after uh, Irma actually, um, we noticed and, and hindsight being 2020, of course, uh, we've learned a lot of things over the years, especially as the, the storm season uh, has increased, it seems each year a little bit with, with severity. And I think it's just because of the cycle of nature right now, but we learn a little bit more each year. So the first year we learned that uh, you have to know who is actually still going to be there uh, after the storm, who's going to be able to, to get out into the community. Uh, and those are our agencies. We, so we have a very robust uh, agency relations team that uh, sends out questionnaires and, and asks the agencies those tough questions, not right before the storm, but months in advance of, of even the storm season starting. So questions like, uh, do you have a generator? Do you have the capability to serve remotely and mobily? Uh, do you have additional refrigeration? Do you have a, a transient a community that perhaps may need to find shelter. Can we assist with that somehow? Um, all of these different questions that we ask our agencies. So that's one piece of it. The second piece, of course, is our amazing volunteer team and finding out uh, after the fact that most of your volunteers have left the state isn't ever a good thing. So we reach out to our, our, our volunteers in advance and say, hey, what are your expectations? And you know, we have a lot of corporate groups that help us uh, every single day get the job done. And so we reach out to them and say, what are your expectations? What do you think you're gonna be doing through the storm and after the storm? And to Dennis's uh, rule number seven, uh, we have to make sure that everybody's taking a level-headed approach to response. Um, and so our employees are always ready and willing and able to jump into the fray. And we all, you know, we have to be cautionary there too, to say, we understand that you want to get back to work and we understand that you want it to help. But uh, if you don't have a house or if your house is, you know, if you have to paddle to work, there's some challenges there too. So there's a very fine balancing act. Um, from a food standpoint, we've never been in a better situation than we are today and than we candidly have been in the last year or so. One of the lessons that we learned from Irma was that um, while MREs, which are meals ready to eat and water supplies are available and we can have access to them, if there's something that substantially hits us directly or locally, we have a real problem getting that stuff. You know, it could be two or three days after the event that we're able to get access to that product. So working with the other food banks in the state, as well as the network across the nation, uh, we're working with FEMA to where we are now forward positioning inventory of MREs and water for FEMA all year long. And it's not just feeding Tampa Bay, it's all of the, the food banks across the state where loads of MREs uh, in our inventory that we're holding for the state so that locally would be able to react immediately, not waiting two or three days for those trucks to get here with the food, but as soon as the, the need is there. I actually got to see some of those in person this morning, uh, Jim, when you were walking me through our uh, our spare warehouse space. and. Um, Personally, I had never seen inside of one of the MRE boxes, and I, I think it'd be cool to kind of explain to the listeners, like, what goes into our disaster relief boxes when we do stuff like this, or, you know, what's contained in an MRE? What would people actually be receiving? Sure. Well, um, there's a bunch of different types. Um, so typically an MRE, if you think about a, a meal ration for uh, the military, this would be something that's very high calorie, something that... Um, and as much as I hate to admit it, they taste pretty darn good. And I say that because I'm like, you always hear the horror stories, right? But um, it, it's a new day for MREs and, and the, 
the food, it, there's a variety of menus, there's a variety of ingredients, but it's basically a three course meal. Um, some of the MREs have heater packs in them, some of them don't. But even closer to home, even before we get to the level of MREs is our actual own in-house production of meal boxes. And so those are something that using the, the COVID response as an example, uh, when I say that we've never really been more prepared than we are right now, we've effectively been sharpening the spear for the last four months. Um, we have been battle ready and not only battle ready, battle worn. Um, our mega pantries and our mobile distributions and our ability to, uh, we've always been very good at running sprints. We found out that we're pretty darn good at running marathons as well. Um, our extended response to COVID has taught us a lot of really valuable lessons. But part of that is our ability to build those meal boxes. So MREs are one thing, right? That's one category of response. And that's typically something where the state will say, hey, there's a pocket of need. We authorize distribution of MREs to this area because it's immediate and it's urgent and it's reached a level of, of mass distribution. One of the nice things about our relationship with the state and the, our relationship with our, our local emergency operations centers is that um, they know that we do that every single day. Part of our COVID response has been building meal boxes that are more, I don't want to say user friendly, but they're, you hear MRE and you think, oh my gosh, this is an event, right? Our meal boxes are meal boxes. They're made with love in our warehouse with food that we purchase and food that's donated to us. And talk about a, a, a wide varied assortment of menus. I mean, everything, it could contain uh, cups of pineapple or, or mixed fruit peas, carrots, pasta, pasta sauce, peanut butter, jelly, beans, all sorts of beans, um, <laughs> sloppy joe. I, I mean, there's not a commodity that I haven't seen come through our warehouse and it's thoughtfully put together. We don't just go, here's a bag of rice. Good luck with, with feeding your family. It's right. here's the rice and, and here's some, some other really nutritious, beneficial things that will help you. We try to make it as snap top or as, as pull top uh, accessible as we can. Sometimes if we get, you know, 15 ounce cans, uh, we're working on can openers too, but the meal boxes that we put together here in house are probably the thing that I'm most proud of. We're, we're doing about 10,000 of those a week right now. Yeah, and in fact, I think you could say that our ability to be as responsive as we have during COVID is actually built off of the back of our emergency response that was developed out of Irma. You know, yeah, Irma, absolutely. we were really winging it and trying to figure it out. I remember I wasn't even here yet, but I came and volunteered at one of the distributions and I was standing on the side of the road, waving my arms, trying to get people to come in and take the food we had available because we weren't really connected with the emergency system in the way we are now. We didn't well, have Shannon on board with all her connections to our friends in the media to get the word out the way we need to get the word out and the way we're able to now. And so that really launched us into getting better, right? Getting better at doing what now we've done for four consecutive months and we're ready to do all the way through hurricane season. And all of that grew out of what we learned from Irma. For sure. And that was one of the biggest touch points for us with Irma was that um, the Hillsborough Oper uh, Emergency Operations Center, for example, within the first 48 hours after Irma, they got 20,000 phone calls from residents. And they weren't all about food, of course. They were, hey, there's a tree down in my yard. I don't have any power, et cetera. But a lot of those turned into my power has been out for three days. I've lost everything in my refrigerator. There's there were literally micro tornadoes that came through in the aftermath of, of Irma where it would be a trailer park. And, and I remember this very well. Uh, uh, a colleague and I went to a trailer park where there were three trailers that were just completely destroyed. Everything else was fine. There were a couple trees down, but taking food out there, one of our biggest hurdles was we simply didn't know. 
um, because those calls were going to the EOC and then the EOC was going, I hope there's somebody out there that can help. Since then, we've developed such a great relationship with our local emergency operations centers, not just Hillsboro, but Pinellas, Hillsboro, Pasco, Manatee, et cetera. Um, I personally have taken over 20 hours of, of FEMA training classes. Um, I'm looking at my other screen now because I've, I knew I would forget them. Uh, there's a 100 level, a 200 level, 300, 400, 288, 700, and it's all based around how EOC centers respond, how you can help, how they interact with nonprofit organizations or NGOs such as us, and, and what the relationship can and should be. So since then, we actually now have a seat at the Emergency Operations Center in Hillsborough County. We have a group of employees that we call the stormtroopers mm -hmm. uh, that when it's activated, when, when the EOC goes to full activation, we have uh, a team that mans eight hour shifts, uh, 24 hours a day, uh, that will sit in that seat and be the recipient of those phone calls. So when they say, hey, we've got somebody that needs food, that goes right to one of our folks that, and we're able to put, put the food and the resources where it needs immediately. That's incredible. So one thing that I think, you know, and the reason why we're doing this subject on the podcast is people are questioning, you know, of course, everyone, you know, is very unsettled at this time. And a lot of people worry. We see we're doing 2 million meals a week, a week and uh, the hurricane's going to come and we want to make sure that they're secure. And one thing that I found fascinating when I came on board to Feeding Tampa Bay over a year and a half ago is our Feeding America network. And one thing I thought was amazing is how the network works across the nation that if any one of us needs help, how that network works. Can you explain that? You know, if we need help from here, they really utilize our expertise. Oh, sure. So we've been both the recipient of and a participant in that response. So um, it, it, there's a couple different areas. One is obviously the, the food that we get. Um, if there is a, uh, a hurricane that, and we're just going to use hurricanes because tis the season, right? Mm -hmm. So if there's a hurricane that affects Texas, and the Houston Food Bank, for example, ends up under three feet of water. Um, and they have, it's not just the food bank, it's the whole city, right? And so they need help. So they send out the battle cry throughout the Feeding America network of 200 food banks across the country. Every single county in the US is represented by a Feeding America network food bank. So they'll send out the call. They for people, resources, food. If there are distributors in that area or in the valley in Texas, for example, uh, if, if there's a, a frost or a cold or, or any type of event that prohibits them from producing what they normally would, the food is shifted across the country. Um, there's a network that's an online network. It's called the Choice Network in the Feeding America lingo, which is loads of food that are put up for grabs from anybody in the network. You just figure out the logistics of getting it to you. That's been a huge help to us in our response to COVID is being able to go online. Because think about it, if you are a food bank, for example, that has a Tyson distribution plant right in your backyard, you're not going to be able to be, uh, to take advantage of all of the food that's available from Tyson you certainly don't want it to go to waste. Tyson certainly doesn't want it to go to waste. So they'll put it out in the network for anybody. So that's especially true in times of, of need and in times of emergency where those networks are, are just hypercritical. The second thing, and one of the things I'm most proud of is the ability for us to float people where they're needed. Um, when I think it was Michael that came through in the panhandle, um, there were a couple food banks up there that desperately needed some help, desperately needed some logistics. So we sent a truck, a trailer, and a, a driver up to the panhandle for two weeks. Um, and actually one of our drivers was up there for about a week and a half, and then we brought him back, sent another one up. And in the time that that driver was in the panhandle, and he was literally going from Tallahassee to, I think, Panama City, just, just doing little hot shot runs for them. 
we have trackers in each of our trucks to tell us where they're at and how far they've traveled and stuff. In the in the two week period that they were in the Panhandle, they traveled the distance that it would be equally from Tampa to Los Angeles and back. Wow. Just going, just driving up there and then doing this wow. for for two yeah. weeks. So it was a cross country adventure. We also have one of our volunteer coordinators that went up to. I think it might have been in the panhandle. It was somewhere north where he went for a couple of weeks to assist. That's what this network is all about. And it's so great to be part, to know that there are people that have your back. And in our own backyard, the Feeding Florida network of 13 food banks across our state uh, is just phenomenal. When when the COVID response started and there were the, the possibility of getting truckloads and truckloads of food, um, it, it wasn't about, oh, just give me what I want. It was give me what I need and I can hold this until they're ready for it or they can hold it and we can station it throughout the state to make sure that our response is that rule number seven. It's let's everybody be calm. We're all in this together. Right, which we can say for the whole community now, now that they've heard a little bit of how uh, we respond during disasters and uh, on top of that, how they need to find somebody they can trust, be that their weatherman or the nonprofit uh, that delivers food nearest to them, whether it be through our programs, through our mobile pantries, our mega pantries, or any of the services that we provide or our partners. Um, Feeding Tampa Bay has definitely got them covered. Yeah, and thank you so much, Jim, for all of your help and insight. You know, obviously you keep us safe uh, all throughout the year from incoming storms and, you know, you keep us ready, like you said, sharpening the spear for when those natural disasters do fall into our lap. Happy to do it. We appreciate you for sure. You can learn more about Feeding Tampa Bay and how to join the movement at feedingtampabay.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Feeding Tampa Bay.